Hello and welcome to the Tifa Football Podcast. I am your host, Joe Devine, and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. Hello. Hello and Hello. welcome. Thank you. And by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Hello and welcome. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well. Good. We're talking about Aston Villa today, newly promoted Aston Villa, uh, back to the big time, back to the Premier League. Uh, Seb, you wanted to start with uh, the playoff final, which I suppose makes the most sense as, a, uh, as, a, as an opening for us. Yeah, I think so. Um, Villa were rightly considered favourites going into that game. Um, and for the vast majority of it, they played extremely well. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't as far as playoffs go, it wasn't a particularly exhilarating game of football to watch. But they played with a decent amount of authority. Uh, they took the lead. They doubled it. They never really looked in danger. I mean, Derby had a little bit of a flourish towards the end of the game. Um, I think actually the, the, the tail of that match is probably going to be what Frank Lampard got wrong in hindsight. Which is what do you think? <sighs> it was so little urgency. Like it, it seemed, even after they went behind, so Villa took the lead, Al Ghazi's had a getting lead just before half time. Um, and then their goalkeeper made a, a real hash of a, of a sort of, a, 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 sort of it was like a, a charge down which floated into a six yard box and he, he came out, didn't take the ball above his head and got beaten to it by John McGinn 2-0. And it was only with about sort of 10 minutes to go that, that Derby realised, well, actually, our, our entire season comes down to it. I thought the attacking balance was wrong. Um, I, I can't pronounce his name. It's a, it's a left winger called, I think it's Joseph Sloon or something. Anyway, he came on and he was, his, his end product wasn't particularly good, but he gave them a kind of um, pace down the left side, which caused Villa a few problems. Um, but some of that may have been the occasion, like halfway through the second half, Villa lost Tyrone Mings, who... Uh, I know John McGinn was awarded man of the match, but I thought Mings was absolutely outstanding in that game. It was, it was terrific at centre-half. And when he came off, um, it changed things. So whether that's a false economy, I don't know. Lampard um, may very well have a, an excellent managerial future. Um, but I thought that sort of um, Dean Smith showed up a few of his kind of flaws or um, naiveties, mm. I think is, is, is the way I look at it. Um, I think also, like, we... <laughs> After a playoff finals one, obviously for a week or two, you focus on, particularly with a club with Villa's tortured past and the, the, the way in which they, they left the Premier League the first time, which was, yes, they eventually got relegated, but it was also kind of slow death. I like, think the Paul Lambert years when it, when it was, it was very counter-attacking, very defensive, very backs against the wall and very sort of uh, 17th is, is our kind of limit. It was a very depressing end for mm. a club of that size. There was, so, there was a decay, wasn't it? It felt like it. And obviously, in hindsight, we know there was. The Randy Lerner years, um, I think I remember most of all for, for the statements he used to, used to issue, which are kind of voyages in, into his psyche. If anyone hasn't read those, go and look those up. They're, they're timeless pieces of work. Um, but I also, you know, the revelations that came out afterwards about sort of just how rotten and how dysfunctional the footballing structure was. Alex and I were talking before we started recording about... Um, the stories of, of sort of their scouting department and how there was a guy, one of their scouts, I think he was in, in some territory, decided halfway through his contract to go on a gap year or go back to university. And so Villa had all these kind of inefficiency which, inefficiencies which were revealed. And it was just not how a football club of that standing should be run. Um, so I think for now, terrific welcome back, you know, um, you know, Villa have got some serious wealth behind them as well. So it's not a it's not a situation where they're kind of they're limping into the Premier League with the expectation of right, well, we'll do nothing, we'll collect the um, the television revenue, and then if we stay up, terrific. I think this is kind of intended as very much as a second era, second coming. Um, so it's an interesting time. But the one of the the conclusions you can't get away from from the playoff final was just how many of those players that they relied upon in the game who are not actually Aston Villa or not actually contracted to Aston Villa. They're either loanees. They're either, they were either there to, to serve a very specific championship level purpose. Um, and if you take those out, if you factor those out of this team, um, you realize just how much work there is to do over the summer. And that's a little bit daunting. Yeah. I mean, we were going to talk about ownership. Maybe it makes sense for us to just talk about the squad now, because I think yeah, probably. Uh, you're right. I mean, I, I, I hadn't, watched very much Villa at all this season, but having a cursory glance over the squad list this morning before we recorded the podcast, uh, I noticed two things. One was that uh, Villa have on the books quite a lot of players who have been in and around the Premier League for a long time, which coincidentally also means that they are old. Uh, and many players who are either out of contract at the end of this uh, season have already left or you would expect to leave 
Um, and perhaps most concerningly, a couple of lone players who've been central to the, the, the first 11 this year in Tyrone Mings and Tammy Abraham, neither of whom are, are concrete signings. I think Tyrone Mings sounds like it looks more likely than Tammy Abraham does. But uh, we've talked about what te- promoted teams should do before. In fact, we spoke about this when we talked about uh, Sheffield United a couple of weeks back and we had a conversation about what the aims should be for teams being promoted from the Championship up to the Premier League. Aston Villa look like they're almost being forced into a sort of Fulham-type situation from last summer. They're going to have to bring in a lot of new players and upset, upset presumably, whatever squad balance existed uh, at the end of this campaign. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so interestingly, um, Christian Perslow, the um, chief executive slash main director, um, he uh, spoke a few days ago, he interviewed about exactly this, because obviously, um, whereas Sheffield United can have a sort of cheerful approach next season, and Norwich have a fairly unique scouting system, which we imagine they will continue with. Um, obviously for Villa, um, with the progress that they want to make, there is that full and parallel, unfortunately. Perzo um, is someone who probably likes to be on Sky Sports News a little bit too much and has that kind of, um, he speaks in sort of perpetual footballer, um, you know, football executive language, where it, you know, it's a little bit grating, but he's a smart guy. Um, and he said, look, we, we, we need to, you know, I, I think the phrase he used was we need to apply a cold towel, first of all, which he was referring to, we need to get over the euphoria of Wembley, which is very sensible, and evaluate a proper way forward, like a sustainable way forward. They're not going to, with, for, I, I don't think anyone's going to make the same mistake Fulham did just because of the, um, you know, the recency bias associated with it. It is seen as a, you know, the, the fast lane to catastrophe. So they are not going to go and spend 25, 30 million pounds on players. They're not going to bring in a kind of a, a Jean-Michel a Seri figure who's there really to, to kind of, as a, uh, to use Villa as a stepping stone to his own future. Um, I, I expect them to move cautiously. They do need to bring in a lot of people. There is going to be volume, but I don't expect there to be much financial risk associated with that volume, particularly given the legacy of the Randy Lerner years. Uh, Lerner, I think it would be fair to say, was someone that entered British football without a proper circumspect um, appreciation for how costly it was going to become to to be competitive. Um, he sort of he dipped his toe in the water and then tried to sort of hastily retreat from it, much to Martin O'Neill's chagrin, obviously. Um, so I think this time, even though there is far more wealth than previously, um, and these owners. Um, are we had they haven't been very prominent they haven't been very vocal they haven't been a kind of um we're going to come in and we're going to um do this they haven't set lofty objectives the one red line seems to be jack Grealish. um obviously once the takeover was completed last summer came always very very quickly that Grealish was going nowhere which suits him he's an aston villa fan um and again perslow stressed just a couple of days ago he has no interest in in discussing jack Grealish's sale Mm-hmm. Um, it might have been hard to keep him this season had they not been promoted. I mean, I by the so. sounds of it, they would have had to sell him just to balance the books. So, right? Grealish, I, I went to Villa Park uh, very early last season when Steve Bruce was still managing. Um, and I actually saw the tool draw with Brentford, um, where Dean Smith was, was managing Brentford. Um, Grealish, going, going to Villa Park at the moment and watching Grealish play there in front of his own fans is a very unique experience. They say it's like watching the Queen walk through Windsor. Like he is adored there. It, it's it's probably, I mean, I stand to be corrected. I'm happy to happy to be so, but I I say it's probably the closest fan player relationship that exists in the in the country. Mm. Well, maybe the possible exception of someone like Harry Kane and Spurs, but it's very much the same dynamic. It is a a local boy, a, a player that his ambition as a child seemingly never really extended beyond. I want to be playing for Villa. Yeah, it's a lovely thing. I mean, I watched him. I watched him pick up the, the playoff trophy and, you know, he was holding it in front of the Villa fans at Wembley. And it's one of those things that you don't, you don't get to see very much anymore because that situation where you have the young guy who's good enough to come through is rare enough. When you have a young guy that's good enough and actually quite a special player and an expressive player playing for his boy club, that's a, it's a very unique situation. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's, it's going to be busy, uh, but I, I don't think Villa will be foolish. I mean, you know, there's too many... There's too many people that know the game well enough. Like Perslow 
whether you like him or not, Pozo has worked for Chelsea, he's worked for, for Liverpool. He, he understands the game. Mm-hmm. Um, they, have, they are now supported by a proper footballing structure with an actual director of football, which makes sense. Um, a manager in Dean Smith who has been used to not making big splurges in the transfer market, but making astute signings with the assistance previously of, of Brentford's scouting systems and the networks and the analytics tools. So he's used to the structure. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see them, right, let's go and find this 35 million player from League 1 or the Eredivisie or Serie A. Who Unless it's Jack Butland. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that that's, that falls into the same equation. I think no. if you were to sign Jack Butland, maybe a little harsh on Jed Steer, the goalkeeper, but Butland is an England's national, um, is hugely uh, underutilised at Stoke because, or overutilised depending on which way you want to look at it um, but he clearly belongs in the Premier League he's a Premier League calibre goalkeeper who has played there before and who has experienced that league so if you were to sign him for 15-20 million I wouldn't class that as a risk I'd say that's just a sensible but bold move Okay well Alex let's take it to um, I suppose what would seem to me to be the most crucial aspect of the summer upcoming uh, hypothetically uh, Aston Villa don't get to sign Tammy Abraham on a permanent deal. Presumably that's quite bad given how many goals he scored for them this season. And uh, I think beyond that, I, I, it's, um, I'm uh, blanking on the name of the second striker who scored nine goals. Kodja. Jonathan Kodja. Uh, but uh, presumably they will need a striker if there isn't Tammy Abraham. Yeah, and it's not just the fact that Abraham contributed 26 goals and no other Villa player got into double figures. It's also the way that they play was was very geared towards either creating space out wide, overlaps and then crossing the ball in for Abraham, or Abraham's movement was crucial in terms of generating space for the midfielders pushing forwards, which is how they scored most of their goals. So they, generally speaking, in attack, they would build from the centre-backs out to the full-backs, the full-backs would push up, and then ahead of that you had a fairly kind of oscillating line of of the the wingers and the midfielders pushing up and and Abraham dropping back. The aim was always to get the ball into wide spaces. And when Seb was talking about the the playoff game, um, you know, one of the things that that Villa were able to do that maybe Derby weren't able to do was adapt. Villa have a basic plan of how they want to play and then they can tweak elements of it in terms of how much they press, for example, where they set their defensive line and how much they encourage the opposition to come onto them to then play into the wide spaces behind the opposition fullbacks. That's the main thing that Derby didn't adapt to. Having a striker like Abraham, who is very mobile, he's very quick, he's able to either get in on the end of crosses uh, or to kind of pull defenders around to allow players like Grealish, McGinn and even Hurahan to, to push up and, and score from the edge of the box, that's really hard to replicate. Um, that's cost a lot of money if you can. Well, yeah, and, and that's why, I mean, I, I think Abraham's a, an excellent player and we've talked about him before uh, on this podcast in terms of being the sort of player that you would hope if, you know, if he doesn't go back to, to Chelsea and start playing games for them, you know, somebody needs to buy him and play him regularly because he's yeah. shown, yeah, I mean, you, yes, there's, there's, there's a lot to like about his game from a technical perspective, certainly from a physical perspective, but there There are a couple of goals that he scored. Um, There was one against Bolton Wanderers, for example, where he heads the ball basically at like desk height, you know, where there's there's feet in there. And this is a guy who, and I'm not (laughs) the last person to talk about passion and heart and wanting it, but he is a hugely committed player. And to see a player on loan playing to that level is quite unusual because I, I always, I personally, I always worry about lone players being quite as committed to the cause as other players for obvious reasons, you know. Um, but this is somebody who really was. So I think replicating that, unless, you know, if I were Villa, I'd, I'd almost be tempted to look at my transfer budget and just say, I will chuck literally as much of this at securing Tammy Abraham's signature as I can possibly afford. How much is Tammy Abraham going to cost? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, also, I mean, the problem presumably it, it's is not gonna, it's not going to happen because of Chelsea's situation. So, you know, in that instance, you're then you're then looking at it and going, well, how how is it possible to replicate that? And and are, for example, Dean Smith's system has by and large been a sort of four one four one, occasionally a four three three, although mm. that's basically the same thing. Occasionally he's played a 4-4-1-1 with, with Grealish tucked in behind 
a striker. So there's not necessarily a great deal of room to adapt what he's going to do. Um, and obviously we're looking at a squad that does need a significant amount of rebuilding for, for the reasons that have been articulated already. Mm. If we're talking about not doing a Fulham, for example, actually where they really need to spend their money is at the back because, you know... They've got no defenders. They've got no defenders. They've all left. They, they, they were... And again, this is one of my issues with loan signings, is that you become reliant on players mm. uh, and Tazanbe and Mings had excellent seasons. But you know they're not going to be there. You're developing a player for somebody else's benefit. And particularly if you use those two players and then two, three, I mean, the fullbacks, El Mahamadi, Hutton and Taylor are all in their early 30s. They add up to over 100. Hutton's gone already. So you, your, your defence is a really awful mishmash of super old and young and talented, but not going to be here next season. Incidentally, speaking of, planning. Um, speaking of their defence and loan signings, Richie Delat. Do you know the story of Richie Delat this season? He was at Melbourne City. Where they played him as a striker and he scored six goals. <laughs> no. Which he, I think, that's would have remarkable. placed him probably on three, third or fourth. Oh, that's uh, damning for the score. A-League, isn't it? That's, that's, well, <laughs> that, yeah. that. Apparently he used to play as a, as a striker okay. in, when okay. he was younger. Right. But I just really like the idea that mid-season, Richie... Have, have, you go, a mate. Go. have a go. Have a go. Oh, six goals. Yeah. Lovely. Some lovely skill as well, apparently. Well, yeah, I, I, you, you can see some I can see Virgil van Dijk playing as a striker. Ross for McCormack example. is in the uh, in the A League in, in Australia, isn't he? He's another back form now. of another form of yeah. Ross McCormack, I believe, is a player that Aston Villa will not be able to get off their books because he costs too much money. Uh, let's talk about defence though, because mm. this is a scary area, I think. Forgetting about Tammy Abraham, this is a scary area for for, for Villa. As we can see from, well, certainly the, in, the, in the playoff game and more recently their most used centre-back pairing was Tuanzebi and Mings, neither of whom are official no. Villa players. That's sort of frightening, particularly if you consider that Neil Taylor, uh, well, presumably they're going to buy another left-back because they, they only have one at the club uh, and uh, El Mohamedi uh, are both quite old and maybe, if not moved into rotation, then certainly they'll be bringing in players to uh, assist well, I in think those areas. El Mahamadi will stay as right back cover. I mean, he's, sure, he's a passable, but you, you're right. That's I, a whole new back, back line. I think, well, I, th- I think one of the first things to happen, um, irrespective of the Ming situation, I, I'm pretty sure Gary Cahill will reappear at Villa Park at some you point. Think? Yeah, his relationship with John Terry, but also obviously he started his career there um, before, he, before he moved on to Bolton. Is he uh, not quite expensive though? In terms not of wages? really, because uh, Chelsea will let him go on the cheap wages, but then I think you're, you're relying on a player's sense of perspective and goodwill and thinking you're not really in England centre half anymore. You don't really mm. belong at a club like Chelsea, you know, and you know, if, if the, if the price of signing someone like that is, is sort of some semblance of security, a player that's been around the Premier League environment for a very long time, you couldn't really do any better. He'd be a good signing I for them. So. And there was a recent interview that he did. Um, I can't remember who with, but there is clearly a deep degree of frustration about the last year at, at Chelsea. He's, he's very unhappy with how he's been treated. Can you tell me about Tyrone uh, Mings, though? Because it sounds of the two, he is, he is the more likely to be around next season. Would, would Gary Cahill, as a hypothetical complement, would those players complement each other? I don't really know anything about Tyrone Mings. Well, I think if, you, if you're looking at, at trying to build a defence, particularly for a newly promoted side, then the, the most important quality, I would say, is leadership and experience, or that two qualities, but, but the, the mental aspect of the game. And I think someone like Cahill, who has played... I mean, it, it, going back over Cahill's record as a player, like he, you know, he, he was very good, but he's won a lot. He's very experienced. He's and, also played with a lot of different types of centre-half over his time yeah, at Chelsea, which yeah. is interesting. And, and, and also, I think, being asked to play himself as quite... I mean, I think he's a, probably a bit more elegant on the ball than people would necessarily give oh, him credit for. He's a good footballer, Gary Cahill. Right. You, people remember the sort of his earlier years, like as a centre-half. First of all, he scored goals that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the position. Mm. That scissor kick at Villa Park. But also, he's got a brilliant 20-yarder at, um, at White Hart Lane a couple of years ago. About 10 years ago, actually, now. He can play. And that's very, mm. very important at Premier yeah. League level. That's very much on trend. Oh, I can't believe I just said that out loud. On Trent. Cut yeah. that out. So I think, Cut that I, out. I think it would be good. I mean, Mings, I don't, I'm not going to profess to know a huge amount about Villa's defence as individuals. I, I look more at the way they defend. So 
um, that they fall back quite often into into quite a narrow um, defensive line. They're they're less concerned about uh, conceding the the position out in the wide areas because they're confident in defending the centre of the penalty area. Hurahan will drop quite back, or quite far back. Whelan as well, who often played in that defensive uh, midfield position. So from from a from a defensive system point of view, they're not doing anything especially clever or especially exciting. And so having someone like we uh, like Cahill to come in to assist with the organisation, maybe to bring on a couple of young players. They've got a, a lad called Courtney Hauser, um, who they signed from Wolverhampton Wanderers who certainly seemed like quite a good prospect, either as a left-sided centre-back or, a, or even a left-back a while ago. So yeah, maybe to, to come in and add that, that uh, not coaching, but, but kind of developmental assistance as well, he makes a lot of sense. Okay. Is this an opportunity in some ways if you have to retool the entire defence. Not maybe, you know, okay, we'll give, we'll give El Mohamedy a pass. It's, it's not an opportunity you want. It's not an opportunity you want, but in some ways, is it, is it not an opportunity? If, for example, let's, let's say uh, that, that, that Dean Smith has inherited this, this team midway through a season, uh, he might have some ideas about how he'd ideally like to do things, yet he's faced with the challenge of doing things with the players he has at his disposal. Is this in some ways, could it be considered an opportunity to uh, do something slightly more in line with Whatever we might imagine, Dean Smith's uh, end game. When it comes to is. when it comes to defence, probably not. I think my preference would always be to um, to sort of defer to defensive chemistry. That feels more important than an individual quality, um, especially in a first Premier League season. So that's very bad then. Well, it, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it depends on sort of look. Well, the, the the asterisk here is it is unusual um, in this situation to be theoretically capable of attracting a Gary Cahill type player. A European Cup winner, you know. So when Bournemouth came up, like I always remember that first season with Bournemouth because their defence, their back four was just—it was really just four blokes. <laughs> like it was just—it was four guys, and it worked. Bournemouth to this day is still very porous at the back. It's a—it's the problem that Eddie Howe can't can't cure even after signing Nathan Ake. Um, but it was enough. It was enough. The team kept functioning. So if you replace your 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 back four or back three, back five, or whatever, you've got two problems. First of all, kind of the uncertainty that exists within your, within, you know, the, the cracks that develop within your, your defence without the ball. With the ball, it's a problem too, because your defence is, is, your, is your portal into midfield. So you're building a whole new set of combinations without the ball, but you're also reworking all of your exit strategies around these new players too. And, and so that level of, that level of difference is, is very prohibitive to, to, first of all, having a good start in the Premier League, which I've always felt is very, very important. Get into it. If you're bringing a lot of players up for upper division and a lot of those haven't played or you know, played a lot at that, at that level, they need to feel at home really quickly because otherwise you get through September, October, you're not winning. All of a sudden it, it gets pretty difficult. Um, so I don't see much opportunity in it. You can get creative at the other end of the field if you like. That's you know, slightly more forgiving to, to, to build a, an attacking combination. But no, I... It's the danger area for me. Okay, but seven players are leaving, right? We've got Mark, or have, or have already left. This, this number will go up yep. as the summer goes on. But Mark Bunn, uh, Tommy Elphick, uh, Alan Hutton, Nicka Richards, Miller Yednak, Glenn Whelan. This is what I was saying earlier about it being a kind of who's who of uh, lower half Premier League players. Um, and also um, Adoma as well. So given that that number's going to go up, how is it possible for anyone to feel at home? Because what... What it? What is home? This is what I, mean, I don't mean to exaggerate this the point, is, but like is, it, it is quite severe, isn't it? It's not. Yeah, it's absolutely. Not, but th- this is a huge coaching... number of the, the the changing room won't look anything like it did last year. No, anything at all. I don't. In that, I I don't sort of. This is where your coaching staff earns its money. There are going to be problems, whatever happens once the new season begins, because it's going to be difficult. But this is these are the advantages of yes, potentially bringing in a Gary Cahill, but also having someone like John Terry on your coaching staff. Dean Smith is very. Uh, Shown himself to be very, very capable and overperformer habitually. Um, so yeah, there, there's no real, real way around it. It's but it's it's about now smart recruitment, recruiting in a way which complements your coaching staff, recruiting in a way which complements who's already there, who's in your midfield, and what your what your sort of um, your, your your stated pattern of play. What what is your your, your broader approach going to be in the Premier League? 
are you going to be what you were before, which is just back to the walls, go long to a Benteke figure and hope for the best? Because I don't, I'm not trying to be reductive, but that's kind of what it became under Paul Lambert at its worst. Or are you going to be a footballing side again? And so there's opportunity in that, but there are these, these sort of looming, flashing negatives around that. And I think in that regard, that probably the, the system and the style that Dean Smith has instituted is the biggest positive for Villa, because I think it's something that they can probably replicate relatively easily and with a reasonable degree of success. Um, they do build from the back to a degree, but it then comes quite direct quite quickly. Um, Who are they similar to? Is that like a, a good way of doing it? Because I often think if we can think of a team that play in a way similarly to Aston Villa, it might help people understand, you know, see that in their head. Yeah, that's a, a good question. And you know what's, what's strange about this is there, there aren't many sides in their position who have that level of reliance on one player. Yeah. I wouldn't say they, they, they start and end with Grealish, but there's a lot of deference to him. Like any opportunity he gets the ball, and rightly so because he's, he's a supremely gifted footballer, but it's, it's quite unique at championship level to have that calibre of... It was James Madison in Norwich City. But I, I don't, I, even then, I, I don't see the parallel. Madison was obviously gifted. He obviously the ball went through him every, every time they... Yeah, but it, doesn't, it doesn't go through Grealish every time when, when Villa attack. What, what's interesting is that the, the two, one approach that they use seems to be really quite systematic, which is centre-back to full-back, full-back up the line to winger, full-back also then pushes up in support and the cross comes in either to Abraham or pull back to a, a midfielder rushing forwards, or it's give it to Grealish. And Grealish has an ability to carry the ball, to work space and, and have those little moments that create you know, sort of chaos in, in the way the opposition are defending. But they're two really different sort of means of, of progressing the ball. One is extremely sort of systematic, if you will. Um, and that, I think, in, in terms of having quite a direct approach, um, defending in the way that they defend, which is not, the, you know, they, they do press, but they tend to press relatively low sort of midfield area rather than, than particularly high or particularly aggressively. I think that sort of works. And they do have a midfield that can create occasional kind of moments of brilliance that will upset teams. The problem is, as Seb said, you know, you can pick a system up and, and transplant it up a division. And I think in that sense, it will work. But it's creating the connections between players. And my, my personal opinion is there's too much to do. You know, you know what would be interesting? So pretty telling moment in this season. I, I remember watching the, the first leg of the playoff semifinal when um, Conor Hurahan equalized. So Grealish gets the ball sort of right side of the box. And the amount of West Brom players that were drawn to him, it must have been about five or six that just, they just flocked towards him like sort of bees around honey. It was incredible to watch. And then Hurahan, who, oh, he's got one of the best left foots in the division. He's just left completely alone, 20, 22, 23 yards out from goal in the position that had he been alone on the pitch, he'd have chosen for himself. And it's, it's interesting to, it'd be interesting to find out whether at a higher level, Grealish has played in the Premier League before, but not as the player he is now be interesting to see how much displacement he now causes um, and how much respect he's afforded by opposition defences and whether him having the ball in those positions, he'll still be able to go past players, but whether he'll create these opportunities, you know, by, by kind of, um, by proxy. Very interesting. It's quite interesting as well. So Grealish, Grealish started as a left inside forward um, when he burst through and there is, there's a sort of echo to me almost, and, and I don't think Grealish is as good as Julian Brandt, but the same idea of, of taking a player who's very tricky, good dribbler, good carrier of the ball, moving him in field and making him the creative fulcrum of that team. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about the Hurahan goal, apart from his terrible chest slide that he did once he was Don't celebrating. do it on the dry grass, guys. Yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. It looks like painful. bumped and it was slightly to it's one side. It's a November very, very, to March celebration. That very, one. very awkward celebration. Um, but it was the fact that, that Grealish... I don't want to say that Grealish was loath to give him the ball, but Hurahan was occupying that space with his hand up for quite a long time before he actually got the pass. Um, and if you, if you watch that goal, I think there's also, there's an initial move where Hurahan's in basically the same position 
to take the same shot. Uh, and it's only the second time that the ball gets played back to him. So there is a danger, I think, if you've got a player like Grealish, who is extraordinarily talented and clearly is the best footballer in that squad by some distance, Abraham aside, um, that you can become a kind of, well, the rest of us just defend and we'll give it to him and hope something happens. Mm. And, it, and if Grealish buys into that and is therefore loath to release the ball and, and, and starts playing a little selfishly, that could be a a major issue for them. Do you think also, though, uh, contrary to that, that the being in the Premier League at the current age that he is now, we hear a lot about how he's matured as a, as a player and indeed a person as well. Do you think that it's possible that he will learn quickly that he doesn't have the time and space that he had in the Championship and he'll give up the ball more quickly than he might have done in some of those instances you I, remember? Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. Um but but you don't know, do you? Because character is one of those things that's very difficult to. Um, I mean, uh, he's not he's not the sort of player who's necessarily attracted criticism of his personality in the same way as, as some others. But there was always a brashness there. There was always a you know I I'm going to be the one who does all of this. Now, when you're a a very talented young man and the type of player that he is at the age that he burst through, that is forgivable. At the age that you then move up, I mean, he's still only 23, but there is a huge amount of responsibility on his shoulders. And uh, I would like to think that he would go the way that sort of Seb has suggested and, and, and take on that responsibility as a very positive thing. And in that regard, again, and come back to the same thing, you know, having a player like okay, uh, Gary Cahill around who can assume some of that responsibility and and assume some of the the leadership from it because otherwise i think and it's always very difficult and this is entirely speculative but if you're if you're a player who carries the aspirations of a team on your shoulders that must be extraordinarily difficult i mean imagine being a matt letizia at southampton where you're clearly by far the best player that 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 club's got at that you know, moment in time. And, and you're the one who's expected to do everything. Um, and Grealish is suddenly, you know, this, this is returned to the promised land and back in the Premier League where Aston Villa belong and they do belong there. And he's the guy who's got to make it all happen. You know, that, that could go quite badly wrong. I'd also, there's a caveat in here as well. If Villa don't do well, whatever happens in the next season, Jack Grealish will not be going back to the championship. And so you have this added dimension where you, you know, your finest player, your prized asset, you know, the emotional centre point of your side. If Villa are struggling within a few months and if there is the suggestion of relegation, you can bet anything you like, the rumours will start, you know, and, and with it with good reason. So you wonder how that as a variable is going to affect their dynamic as a side. It's, it's difficult. We've got uh, Gary Cahill as a sort of reasonable um dream in some ways mm -hmm. give me a, left, reasonable, a reasonable dream, dream. <laughs> it's the sort of dream that you wake up from and you go yes that was reasonable that was okay um yeah. i think uh in left back there needs to be recruitment and also i'm going to come back to tammy abraham we talked about that we hinted at the possible difficulties there but let's address it fully because if he does not come back and become a permanent player which it seems like he probably won't yeah. what, what on earth are they going to do I, I don't know is the honest answer. What's more important, let's say, for example, that they have, they have a budget already. We know that they've got a lot of work to do in defence, but they don't, if they don't have anyone who scores any goals, what's more important coming up into the Premier goals. League? Where are you supposed to spend goals. your money? Goals, because... If you goals, goals, at, goals. Yeah, if you look at the weaknesses of, like if you look at Huddersfield, for instance, yeah. Huddersfield were not the bad team they were, they were presented as. I mean, they had obvious, very, very obvious flaws. But their biggest issue through both seasons, they just couldn't score goals. They didn't have forwards on the pitch that were anything like Premier League standard. Um, I mean, one thing with Abraham, look, I, I watched a lot of Abraham at Swansea. Um, and I, the summer before, I, I'd been in Poland with him and the under-21s, and I'd, I'd spent some time with him. And I was uh, thoroughly impressed by what he was, what he'd been at Bristol City, um, and the type of person he was. So I thought, this is a guy that's going to adapt really well to the Premier League. And it didn't really happen. Like, he. He has the ability to be a Premier League forward. Um, I don't think we should be presenting him as someone that is going to get 20 goals if he were to hypothetically stay at Villa. I don't think... I mean, he's, he's someone that needs to grow into Premier League life. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 I don't know. But the, so that, who's, who's our Gary Cahill? 
a Gary Cahill of the forward line. Yes. Oh. And it's not Richie Dillette, I don't think. Although it clearly could have been. I mean, it's, it's about who's available. I mean, I want to look at Premier League players who um, have a record for scoring goals who would be... Glenn Murray. Ayesi Perez. Okay. You know, I mean, someone like that. Or if, if, if for instance, um, this hinges on what happens at Newcastle, takeover or otherwise. But if they are still under Mike Ashley's command in a couple of months' time, have a go at Salomon Rondon, who is available, who is available for a good fee, who has been presumably would, would fit more the bill uh, than, than Perez would right? uh, in terms of current like, style. A proper target man. I don't see there aren't that many straight lines between him and Abraham. There is a similarity which would allow him to fit into what Villa do, and I think I, I don't see a better target man performance than. Uh, all season from a, a club of that standing than than Rondon's at Stamford Bridge. Did you did season. you see uh, Venezuela beating Argentina three one? I did not because Rondon was just immense. Rondon Rondon's a man. Really, Rondon really is an good. alpha male of a player who um, works far hard and he's given credit for. Um, and in in a team that sort of like Joe's giggling in the background. So, That's a level of professional. I'm giggling because uh, your, your is significant other is sat on the other side of the room and she made a face when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> She's committed now. We're getting married. There's nothing she can do about it. <laughs> but you were you were talking about an alpha male man, an alpha male man. Mm, but mm. he is. He's just like he has. If you think of the stereotypes associated with target man play, you picture Salomon Rondon. Mm. Like he just he can he can receive the ball with you know three centre halves around him, and because of his size and technique and the way he plays the game. He can, he can, he is that sort of, he is that staging point. It's, it's in the pheromones, isn't yeah. it? And that, that sort of player does, I don't, that sort of player is not dying out by any stretch of the imagination. If, if you look at, for example, the Italian under 21 side, they've got a couple of players who are very much in that mold, like Pina Monte, who's the, the enter striker. So there's still room for like big bustling forwards, but in the Premier League particularly, there's, there's been a move more towards the sort of player who can drop off, the sort of player who can link up um, false nines, if you will. Although Harry Kane does it all, of course. Harry Kane does it all, sure, when he's not hobbling around. Mm. Um, but I think if you're someone like Villa, and again, this is a, a coaching question, but you're, you're going to have to integrate a large number of new players. So that's a non-negotiable. That is just going to happen. In which case, what do you want to concentrate on from a coaching perspective? Well, it's easier to coach defence in some ways than it is to coach a- attack, particularly um, if you're not the sort of pressing side that, say, for example, a Liverpool are. Um, but at the same time, that to me, that's the bit that you want to get absolutely right before you start working on anything complicated and new. Mm-hmm. So if you're Dean Smith and you've already got a, a host of kind of, um, uh, you know, you know, you know how to, and your coaching staff knows how to implement the same system, uh, then you want to try and keep that system relatively similar and find players that will fit what's already what some of your guys are used to, because. Mm-hmm. Because McGinn will stay, Grealish will stay, Hurahan will stay. You know, a, a lot of the guys who were integral to how that system worked will be around. In the later months, yeah. So, you know, they're, they're already there. So you, you want to fit a, a, you know, you, you want a, a, a round peg for a round hole rather than trying to get, and this is why, for example, I wouldn't go for Perez because I don't think Perez works for that style. I think what's interesting. Although he's a good player. Like what's, what's interesting about what you're saying as well is that, you, yes, you want, you want round pegs for round holes. The frightening thing I would say about the situation that Villa are in is that many of the holes that now need filling are, are squad holes. They're not necessarily uh, first 11. You know, we picked three players there who probably aren't, aren't returning and uh, might need to be replaced. But many of the list of players who are leaving are sort of older players who, towards the end of the season at least, or perhaps even earlier than that, weren't featuring in the squad. Is it, does it present a slightly different and difficult challenge to bring in players who know they aren't necessarily going to feature every week in you know, if you bring in five players to 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 fill out the squad because it's I, thin I, at the moment i'm not sure they even are filling out the squad i mean i i i think if you look at if you look at the the side that you know started most of the games towards the end of the season of premier league level really you've got Grealish <laughs> left you know mcginn could, could be good definitely but Seb likes McGinn. If you, if you can, I if like you, McGinn if you, if you as can well, look but... beyond his running style, he runs funny. What kind of male is he? 
He's kind of an alpha. Okay. I don't think he's an alpha. I think he's a beta. Anyway, by the by, (laughs) um, it's the rest of that squad is either good but old, not there anymore, or actually not that good. Um, Weirdly, I think actually Lovra Kalinic, who was the goalkeeper they bought in in January, probably is Premier League standard, so I wouldn't bother buying another goalkeeper. It looks like he might be leaving, though. What, already? Mm-hmm. After six months? I think he was. I think he had an injury, which uh, led to Jed Steer coming in, and I think he's unsettled. Uh, it, this, the talk is that he looks like he might be on his way out. I'm not, I think Jed Steer's played very well. Like, uh, I mean, but I mean, Jed Steer was recalled from loan to play I understand, as the first keeper. But then, you know, football history, you have players. That, that happens to players sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think he's, he's uh, I don't know whether he's a Premier League goalkeeper, but I, I wouldn't dismiss him out of hand, that's all. My point being that in terms of your question, you know, are you looking to recruit players who are coming in and happy to be squad players? Mm. That, that isn't the issue for them. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to, to see what's going to happen from a recruitment perspective because, you know, obviously you have a look at, at, at Fulham last season who recruited players who are actually very good and will go on and do well. And when we talked before the podcast, um, Seb and I, about the 2015-16 the season when Villa last went down, and there they recruited a bunch of players from Ligue 1, some of whom are excellent players. So you address a gay, Jordan Veratu, Jordan Amavi, who should have been much better than he was, um, Adama Traore, not from Ligue 1, but a good player and an interesting impact player. There was clearly under Ian Atkins, who was the, the previous head of scouting there, there, there was a clear theory about the sort of player that you should try and get. They were all reasonably priced. I'd say some of them were excellent value. And it for some reason, it didn't work. And, and it's sort of a bit like Fulham this season, although I would argue that the reason it didn't work at Fulham is because they didn't get a decent defender. But it will be really, really interesting to see whether Villa kind of look at this, you know, how they used to do stuff, which was pretty savvy but didn't necessarily work, or whether they are super cautious, whether they think, okay, well, we've got James Bree coming back. He was kind of a prospect when he was at Barnsley, maybe didn't do so well at Ipswich, but let's give him a bit of a run. You know, there's there's a, many different ways they could approach this. Um I still don't think it's going to be enough. <laughs> I think. Well, I, think, I mean, I was I going to Villa say, are, I think Villa are, there's too there's too much to do, in my opinion, for it to work. Before but, we discuss ownership, sounds like we know where Alex is. Seb, what are your expectations for uh, for Villa? Well, I, I don't think we should undersell the proposition that they are offering. Like Villa coming up are not they're, they're not your average newly promoted team. Um, and also, we talked about sort of that. You know the good parts of their recruitment before they went down, and they they were able to recruit those players despite the fact that really they were selling a ticket on the Titanic. So I'm interested to see what they're not going to be offering huge wages. They're not be, going to be able to shop um, at great expense. But they're, but they're they are going theoretically to be able, are the third wealthiest club in England. Well, there you go. So that you're able to offer, you're able to offer sort of the the a player, you know, the the chance to to get on board at the start of what should be. Hypothetically, um, the beginning of this new era, and I, I'm interested by that because that appeals to players. Um, also, Villa Park is a wonderful place to play football. So, one of the best places to watch the game in the whole country. So, you know, I know these are little things which probably matter more to fans and journalists than they do to players. They're still important. Um, I think they'll struggle. Like I, I think because of all the reasons we've discussed, the, I, I never like um, flux. It always unsettles me. I want to see. Uh, a stable core in a team and, you know, sign off it from there. But I, Are you like that in your life? Uh, I'm a, well, you can, you can ask a higher authority than me. She's sitting behind me. Yes. So the we, got, we, we, yes. We, we got, we got two thumbs up there. Yeah. Okay. But it's going to be because of, because they won't push all their chips into the table in the summer. It's going to be cautious. It's going to be a, if, if they're going to be successful, it's going to be because they finished between 15th and 17th. They're not going to do a Wolves. Clearly not, um, just because they're not at that stage of their, their regrowth yet. Um, well, will you explain to me why they've got so much money? So, um, obviously, I mean, that's a nice broad question. <laughs> I really love the way you put that. That was, oh, sorry, that just amused you just, me. Your, your, your face is sad. You just, you just, yeah, okay. I was trying to save time, but we've wasted it now, haven't we? Okay, we have. Yeah. We, yes, I, that's my fault. Um, so, obviously, last summer, um, Tony Shear 
Um, well, I'm still not quite sure how it got to the stage that it did under him. Uh, I think there were some concerns about being able to move money from various uh, countries so, to, to other various countries. What we know about kind international of, difficulties. It's known as capital flight, mm. basically, and uh, China mm. doesn't love it. No, um, it doesn't. I think that's the way to put that. But obviously, uh, at this time last year, Villa had some uh, very uh, intimidating and fastly approaching tax deadlines that they would have been unable to meet. Uh, had it not been for new investment. Fortunately enough, uh, they were taken over. Um, I can't remember the exact date of it. I want to say it was about July last year, July 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, 55% uh, of the club was sold to Nassif Sawiris um, and Wes Edens. And Nassif Sawiris is um, a member of the wealthiest family in Egypt. Um, he's Very a- wealthy. Very, very wealthy. And if that wasn't enough, uh, Wes Edens... Uh, Who, incidentally, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Birmingham Live article, for some reason, kept calling him Wes Edens Edens. I think it was... Well, like a hyphen? Some kind of error. No, no, just Edens twice, but every time it was mentioned. That's interesting. It's a quirk Maybe one for another the, podcast the about something, sure. something else, but, sure, sure, you know, sure. that's interesting enough. Do continue. Wes Edens is an interesting guy. Like, he... Um, if, you, if you read it up on him, uh, a couple of years ago, the, the New York Times referred to him as the, uh, the new king of subprime lending. <laughs> Which is a little bit disingenuous because That's he didn't actually make his money from the practice of subprime lending. He invested in the... Sure. The whole dirty affair. Yeah, but yeah. It, more, probably more relevant is his... What well, was his relevance? Uh, was his ownership of um, the Milwaukee Bucks, who are a basketball team. So he, um, him, him and his business partner bought, in, bought the franchise in 2014. Um, and at one point he in a bid to leverage a new stadium from the city of Milwaukee, uh, threatened to move the team. A tried and, a tried and tested practice. Yeah, it's kind of very similar to the Stan Kroenke situation with um, yeah. St. Louis and, uh, and Los Angeles. Although in this instance, uh, Milwaukee um, came up with the X hundred number of million dollars. Sure. They caved, caved to the ransom. Yeah. I don't know how relevant it is. So like, when, 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 a, when a foreign owner comes into the league, we're always looking for these red flags and always looking for the kind of, you know, the, um, uh, the smoking Stan Kroenke gun. The thing is, if they're American and they're in sport, it's a different it's thing. Like it's a different culture. And, yeah. um, it's sort of Frank- expected. And, and also that, yeah. that kind of effectively ransoming uh, the, the, the location of a franchise against enforcing state um, investment in it is a very regular thing. Exactly, that that. often doesn't result in it, anything. It, exactly happening. that. So when we can, re- I also say before you carry on as well. I think the one we took, I think it's awful and wrong. But when we talk about it in the UK as it relates to football, I think we think about it in the frame of in what the, if Aston Villa were to move? Or it's this is the thing, it. and it's not quite the same thing. No, There's it's a different set of rules, and that always has been. It's not the same thing, and also it's it's sort of it's not really contextually relevant because that dynamic just doesn't exist in football. Like there is one. Uh, well, two if you include Arsenal. Um, one, one terrible franchising precedent, and everyone hates it forever. Um, but Wes Edens, you know, uh, for, for for now, all that really matters is he is an extraordinarily wealthy uh, businessman. He's worth billions of dollars, and he is in Aston Villa's corner. Two point five billion dollars. Well, this, the thing is, is that I, I remember I read an article when this first happened. Um, I think back in sort of September, October of last year, and it's really important not to prejudge people. Like if you were to say, like, you needn't be wary of a Wes Edens and a Nassif Sawiris when your previous owner has been Randy Lerner. I mean, it, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of like a, a default position, isn't it? New owner, what's wrong with him? What does he actually want? Why, what is the real reason behind him owning this football club? And in reality, almost every owner has an ulterior motive now, but that's kind of okay because we, we have enough examples where um, the club's interests can um, live exist independently or exist sort of co have a, have a sort of codependency with a kind of whatever soft power objectives exist or whatever marketing objectives. It's just the way the game is. So we didn't kind of point fingers all the time. And so until either of these people sort of um, show uh, or give us reason to think otherwise, it's a, it's not a benevolent gesture. Of course, no, no, no one's being that naive, but there isn't kind of the need to sort of, to um, appoint accusatory, ugh, point accusatory fingers or try and find some kind of underlying conspiracy which may exist somewhere. Also, the, the best owners in the Premier League currently are American. There you go. So, you know. Who are they? Oh, FSG, Liverpool's 
in in terms of taking an astute long-term approach to planning strategy growing a football club at a sensible yep. rate believing in a particular manager reinforcing that with a series of transfers to assist a system of play mm. no one's doing it better really, um, no no one would say also that fsg aren't aren't using in sort of inverted commas liverpool for their own purposes there is sure. always a a secondary purpose here and so um yeah there's nothing you know Villa's owners, since they came in, they have implemented all the things that Villa did not have prior to them arriving. Like if you if you think back to sort of what the club was under Lerner and Doctor Shirt, I as a as a as a as an organisation, um, very underdeveloped in terms of who was in what positions, who was making decisions, and how qualified those people were to be making those decisions. And so, sort of the trajectory that is that is um, being created by their arrival. Well, that, that's not due anything but praise at the moment. doesn't mean that you can't remain sceptical in the future, but at the moment, it's a, it's a success story. I read, in, it was in Birmingham Live again. Birmingham Live. You should read other newspapers, other, other Midlands-based I'm a big fan newspapers. of Birmingham Live. But I read in uh, Birmingham Live earlier that, um, according to, I didn't read this bit, I wrote this bit, according to Birmingham Live, a promotion bonus agreement made by Tony Shear with Randy Lerner when he bought the club in 2016 uh, has uh, left the new owners with thirty million pounds to to pay out as a result of the promotion. I think the agreement reportedly would have ended uh, this year. So had they not been promoted, they wouldn't have had to pay it. But uh, that's what Birmingham Life says. It feels symptomatic of what the club was, sort of, you know, leveraging their future against things that didn't really make sense. I mean, it's kind of. I have a great deal of sympathy for, for Villa fans for what they've had to put up with over the last decade. I mean, I think that was reflected in the sort of, I mean, it, it seems a long time ago now, but in the kind of the, the average attendance you used to see at Villa Park on Premier League match days, you know, you'd have clubs that would ordinarily attract, you know, sort of people that were becoming disenfranchised. And even for sort of the big clubs, the Manchester United, the, you know, the, uh, the Chelsea's, the Spurs, um, that kind of, that kind of size of, of, of aside. Um, you just saw so many empty seats, and that's a sadder sight in football. Mm. Like, um, and that was a direct reaction to kind of the sort of the the ennui that that crept into to, to Lerner's re- um, reign over many many years. And yeah, it's uh, it's actually nice because so often this situation. I mean, at the time that we're recording this, Newcastle takeover isn't completed. But it's a very similar situation um, to the northeast. I mean, it hasn't manifested in the same way. There's still a lot of people at St. James's Park, but it's kind of this... Huge this, ancient structure. Well, yeah, but it's like a pervasive hopelessness which, which seeps into the support, um, which from what I noticed from the outside seemed to, to characterise what, what Villa were when they, when they left the division. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming, Seb. Thank you, Joe. Alex. Thanks. I hope people have uh, enjoyed that. And uh, we'll be back next week with I don't know what, um, but uh, listen to that one. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.